Hi, I'm Victor Compulsive Overeater, Worker Among Workers, and there used to be a program on TV when I was growing up where the detective would walk up to the, you know, the camera or the person I was talking to, at least in a way, and say, just the facts. So here's a couple of just current facts that go back approximately two years. About two years ago, I was in the ER, and the doctor had to stop my heart for three seconds, which is an interesting experience. Then I had a three-hour procedure, and during the middle of it, I woke up. Um, just within the space of about a week afterwards, I had an internal bleed in my eye. It took about five months to heal, and it, uh, I, since I wasn't driving at the time, I had to ride a bus and the rail line to work. Um, a few weeks or months after that, my wife uh, passed out because her blood pressure was so low. She fell, and luckily she missed the edge of the uh, concrete tub, or not the concrete, the ceramic tub by about six inches, got her to the ER. Uh, about a year ago when I was driving to the store, I went from 100% to 0% sight in 25 minutes. I've had two eye surgeries within two months of that particular two, uh, period of time. After my first surgery, which was going to take an hour, wound up going for three hours. I figure, couldn't figure out why I couldn't sleep at night for a while. And then I realized I had some PTSD. Uh, my wife went to the ER with the worst angina attack she'd ever had. The nitroglycerin she normally takes for the angina didn't help, so they had to give her morphine. We brought her home the next day. Um, we prepared and sold our 4,000-square-foot house and moved into a 792-square-foot apartment. As my uh, mother-in-law told my father-in-law years ago after he, she had spent a lot of time with him because he was at home at that particular time, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. Uh, uh, third eye surgery was supposed to occur in December but was delayed due to uh, complications and it was done on April 6th and I found out at the time because I'd never asked this question before on average how many more surgeries do you possibly need to you know, take care of this what's the average she said five so I'm at three I'm figuring five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten uh, anyway um, let's figure who did that my wife, uh, for the last seven years, has had petty mal seizures due to two strokes she had about 15, 16 years ago. The only reason I mentioned that was two and a half weeks ago. She had a grand mal seizure, seizure which includes convulsions, frothing of the mouth, and unconsciousness. Uh, called 911, got her to the ER. The uh, good news is they didn't find any additional brain damage. The bad news is they don't know what caused it yet. And then two days after I got her out of the hospital, she found out that uh, the results of her MRI showed that the vertebrae were out by nine millimeters, one of them in the back, lower back, which is probably causing her back pain. May 31st, I retired uh, after over 30, uh, working for over 50 years. Uh, my eyesight is uh, bent, obviously, because I'm not seeing either out of this eye well or I'm a modern pirate. I haven't sure figured out what that one is yet, but um, peripheral vision and Depth perception are off. That's why I carry this shillelagh that I bought from Ireland, being 45% Irish. And I was walking down the street after a meeting one day, just across the street. And I was very careful to look as I check, but because of the limitation I had, as I was walking back and swinging the bag that I was carrying, a truck knocked it out of my hand and almost hit me. So, those are just facts. Just like the fact today is Saturday morning, just like the fact that we're sitting in this seat right now, and today, as far as I can tell, at least in this universe that we live in, is June 10th of year 2017, as we determine that, which is arbitrary anyway, because that's only a human construct. Okay. Um, I have memories that go back to about two, two and a half years old, at about the age of five. 
I was told by my mother not to do something which on the scale of the Richter scale of bad things to do was about like that. I got home because being the kid that I was, I shared some toys with uh, the boy next door and my mom took a belt and whipped me and then held me and cried and told me that she loved me. Which set me on a nice road going down the road. By the way, that story for me to tell it used to take about 10 or 15 minutes. That's another just fact. And the one thing that my mom also told me, which she was very good at, was she was, gosh, she was a great cook. I won't even begin to describe the things too much or we'll all be running to another meeting after this meeting. But the food was really great. And um, my mom, who was five foot six, weighed 330 pounds and was a self-described uh, farm girl from Oklahoma, um, the thing I came to understand about that is that when she finally died, and then about 12 to 14 years later, because it took me that long to come to terms with my grief about my mother's death, I realized that I needed to do inventory that included the hate that I had for my mother, uh, which led to my part in it, which is I'm an adult and I get to make choices of what do I want to carry around in myself in my life for the rest of my life or let go of, and came to a tremendous amount of appreciation for my mother. And the fact that when that happened, that was 1953, and OA didn't exist at the time. There's an old saying that, you know, you hurt the ones that you love. And I, I say the following not out of ego, but because I was, I was told this by other people. This is that I was the person, one person in her life that she loved more than anyone else. And I, I can only imagine the pain that she must have been in to do that to me at that particular time at five years old. Because once again, she had no place to turn to. And I have not only forgiven herself for that, but also forgiven myself for the hate that I harbored in my heart that I didn't even know that I had because the thing of it is, good boys don't hate their mother. That's what we were always taught. Anyway, going forward from there, um, I remember that at a certain period of my lifetime, I was able to grow more vertically than horizontally. But when I hit about uh, 14 or so, the vertical started really slowing down a lot. And uh, that particular summer before I started high school, which is the high school you had to take, all boys high school, you had to take an entrance exam to get in. And I don't say that to be smart, uh, to be able to do so, you had to have a certain amount of intelligence. But to just, it was another stressing point in my life, too, that I had these expectations that I actually set upon myself because I made the choice to go to this school. But I gained 30 pounds at sorry, 25 pounds that summer within a space of about three months. And my life going forward for almost the rest of my life up until 26 years ago when I came into this program was constant up and constant down, constant up and constant down. My highest weight, I would say, is approximately 35 or 36 pounds more than I weigh right now, but I probably lost my own body weight a number of times over all those years. Um... So, and anyway, uh, there was this beautiful young woman that I met when I was 18. We got married as 18. Three months later, I didn't understand why she was getting sick every morning. And six months after that, I got my uh, birth certificate for my son, who will turn 50 in October. Uh, there was an old thing called the rhythm method back then, and my rhythm either was really good or really bad. I haven't figured that one out yet. In any case, we moved. I always love it when there's another second laugh, about a second later, it just comes back at you. Um, going through that particular period of time, I need to mention something I won't go into detail about, 
but there was a substance that I got involved with when I was 21 that was a perfect tie-in to my OA compulsion and my OA problem with food. And OA is my primary problem that I've had all my life. The only reason I mentioned that is, and it wasn't the beverage program, they start narrowing it down. Um, guess what was it? Um, and uh, the thing of it is, what it did was, is it stopped, along with the food, I found another way to not mature. And it stopped my ability to mature. And uh, the following is not a comment on my first wife. This is a comment on me in terms of where my self-esteem had gotten to. Uh, I bought a new used motorcycle one time many, many years ago. And I was out there kind of cleaning it up. So I taking some pride in it and trying to make it look nice, even though it was my main ride to work. And that was the main purpose for getting it. She walked out one day and she said, with no rancor in her voice, no tone, no attitude, just a very simple statement of fact. You spend a lot of time polishing that motorcycle. And I never polished it after that. Because my mother had been my first higher power. And then my wife became my second higher power after I came home one day and she was packed and ready to leave with the two children about a month after my mom had died. So moving forward through all of that, one of the things that is a constant in my life was is I always had food. And it sounds rather odd to say this in some fashions, I suppose, but I'm grateful that I did because that was the only thing I knew how to do. I, with my feelings, I knew I had them. But I was a little bit like an Eskimo that had been taken into the dark part of the forest overnight and woke up in the morning and was asked to describe how many colors there were in the forest. I knew there was such a thing as color. I knew there was such a thing as feelings, but I couldn't begin to describe what really they were. Um, and surprise, you can have more than one at the same time. And surprise, you can have another one that masks what you're really feeling underneath. Um, in any case, um, Going to fast forward a little bit more to about 1981, where I woke up one night and I was a father, a single father with two kids. This didn't go on forever because I, once again, we're just dealing with the facts. Not, I'm not going to take my violin and play it for you. There's no melodrama here. Um, and went on from that. Uh, started my first 12-step program 30, over 36 years ago. And uh, then found another fine lady in my life. We got married. We we're going to have children. And then I got a, a call one day at work. And the call was that I needed to get home and take my wife to the hospital. She was pregnant about three and a half months at that particular time. Um, I got in the car, started driving down from Pasadena to Los Angeles. If you know the Pasadena freeway at all, it was built to go at about 45 miles an hour, and I was doing 70. There's no accident, by the way. This, I'm not gonna, once again, this isn't drama. This is just the reality of it. And I started to cry because the son we were expecting wasn't going to make it. The thing I learned that was really important from my first sponsor, my first program years ago, it's really important to deal with my feelings as soon as I possibly can. Otherwise, they're just going to come back and haunt me. The grief that it took me the 12 or 14 years to deal with my mother as an example I describe this once again not to be melodramatic, but to be able to describe the feeling when I finally came to terms with the grief and loss of my mother, it felt as if somebody had taken a giant oak tree and pulled it out by its roots. I mean, it was that profound for me. Um, 
But the other thing I learned going that 70 miles an hour down that the Pasadena freeway that particular day was is that it's also important that I understand the priorities in my life and the priority of that time was to take care of my wife. Not to put my stuff, my feelings down, but put them aside for a moment. And that's completely legitimate and important thing to do. The reason I'm telling you this story is, is that after I got my wife home after a couple of days in the hospital, it was in the evening and I asked if she was okay and she said yes and we were about to get into bed and it was as if somebody at that point had flipped a switch because at that point I know I could cry and deal with my feelings about the loss of our son. Now within a week of that period of time, I walked up to my wife and I'd cut out one of these little ads that are in the newspaper back at the, at the time, at least anyway. And I, if you've heard my spiel before, you know this is part of it. They show you before and they show the after picture of the person and that person has paid X number of dollars and given this person six weeks. And then they take the first picture under terrible light showing every wrinkle and everything there is. And then the second picture is, is that they get you just at the right angle doing this and saying, hi, don't I look really great? Uh, and as I said before, is, is that the problem with that is they don't show you what that person looks like one minute, one day, one week, one month, ten years afterwards. At that shot of perfection that somehow we all have to supposedly aspire to, and there's no such thing as perfection in this life. The definition of being a human being for me is fallibility and imperfection, which doesn't give me leave to do anything that I want to. Um, but I, I took that tour and I said for the first time out loud to someone else, knowing what I meant and not joking about it, was that I had a problem with food and I didn't know what to do. And I'm grateful to this very day that she suggested I go to OA, which I did uh, approximately at 727. I think it was on maybe January the 16th, I think, in 1991, more or less, out in Santa Monica. And I went to my first meeting there, and I raised my hand. And for the first time in front of people that I didn't know, never met any of them in my life before, I was able to say, I am a compulsive overeater. Food is beat the shit out of me, and I don't know what to do, and it was time for me to let go of all of that. And somebody else was willing to share with me what their abstinence and their food plan was, and it was a starting point for me. But it was just a starting point, because um, I know that when I started my first 12-step program 36 years ago, I did a little plea, plea bargain with my higher power, and that plea bargain was as follows. My writing in that program in the beginning, I, the word food kept popping up. I don't know why, but it kept popping up in that writing. So I thought, two birds, one stone. we got this covered. What I'm going to do is I'm going to insert the word food in the first step. And having done that, what, I'll have, what the hell else do I need to do? Because I've gone through the steps in this other program. Why do I need to do it going forward? Well, <sighs> there's the good news and the bad news. And the good news is, is, is that that had given me an introduction. Uh, the challenge, of course, was that I needed to do it again. And I got to one particular point where I got to the fourth step in this program, and it was like, I can't think of anything else that I need to write down. Really, honestly, I can't think of anything else I need to do. And it was at a writing workshop, and I was paired with somebody who was a completely different person than I was. Not that they were good or bad, we just different people entirely. And as we were writing and we shared, the other individual shared something and then a light bulb went off in my head and I said, no, there is one more thing I needed to share and I needed to write down. And the reason I'm saying that is, is, is that 
Once again, food is my primary and always has been for many, many years. And I can't tell you how young. I don't know if I was born this way or not. Although I sort of look a little bit like a baby gorilla when I was born. Um, kind of round and chubby. But it is important that I understand and accept for myself that it is food that has been my challenge throughout my entire life. It was both my savior as well as my demon at the same time. It got me through times when that was the only thing I had to be able to rely on, but it got to the point where I couldn't rely on it anymore, and the pain got to the point where it was too much for me to take, and the pain was worse than all the feelings that I had up to that point in my life. So, what do I do today? Well, first of all, I have an abstinence, and my abstinence is I abstain from compulsive overeating and activities that are going to put me in position that are going to cause me a problem. Uh, my food plan is I don't eat chocolate. All the things that I listed here in the beginning, I can guarantee you that if I had uh, sat down with a two-pound box of chocolate after each of those events, first of all, it wouldn't be just the two pounds of chocolate, but that's another story. It wouldn't have changed any of that. I mean, I could literally take a two-pound box of chocolate and paste it to my right eye, and it wouldn't give me sight back again. It just ain't going to work that way. And so food was, at the time, early on, what I thought was the answer, but it was actually my problem, and I didn't realize that. And until I was willing to admit that, I was still caught up in that obsession and listening to my disease tell me, well, you know, I tell you what, you stepped on that scale and you look like you are, uh, need to lose weight. So therefore, I'd starve myself and I would diet. And then I get down to the scale. And if the scale happened to say, hey, now you're at your goal weight, what you want to be, then the disease in my head would say, oh, we can start eating again. And if I went down below that, that was even better because it was like all bets were off. Now we can just take off and keep going again. And then I'd turn around a few weeks later and the feeling of what just happened. And I had no clue whatsoever. And this became stronger and stronger and stronger as my life went on because I relied on it more and more and more. And I discovered somewhere along the line that if I continued down that road, that I didn't know what it was going to do to other people, but I know if I continued down the road, that was going to kill me. And I had just gotten to that point in my life in my uh, early 40s or so where I started thinking, hey, I'm becoming middle-aged. Middle-aged guys in America, you can just kind of let it go a little bit. You don't have to worry about it. You can just keep moving on and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things I know right now is, is that when I get a, in a debate with myself, there's one thing that is guaranteed, and that's I'm going to lose. Because, oh God, it's the old cliche, but very true, my best thinking got me here. And what I can do today for that, if I want to, is I can get my ass into a, a chair at a meeting and listen to other people. And what allowed me to be able to trust this program were not the words on paper although they were certainly profound and certainly helpful and provide the guidance that I needed. But the most important thing is, ah, two more hours, thank you. Um, the most important thing was is that all of you had been down this road before me because I could then trust somebody else who had been in the same or similar set of circumstances enough to know that this worked for them. If I'm willing to put my ego aside and once again just be a worker among workers, I can find relief from this obsession of food. And so um, one day at a time, I'm grateful that I have 
26 years of abstinence in this program, and I immediately say afterwards that the only important part of any of that is, is that the world record for abstinence is only 24 hours. I was talking to someone I sponsor a, a few days ago, and they were talking about stuff, you know, next year and the year after and the year after that. And I, at one particular point, I gently I said, I think you must understand the most important thing is you don't have to do this the rest of your life. In fact, you don't have to do it at all. If I'm willing to accept the consequences of my actions or inactions, I can do anything I want to. I'm not willing anymore to accept the consequences of the food. I'm not willing to have eaten so much that I start feeling ill and sick and then perform the wonderful magic that my disease tells me in order to feel better, eat more. Everybody knows the answer to that one. Um, and we all know, yes, that's, that's the definition of insanity. Today, what I do, and I do it imperfectly, because otherwise I'd be lying to you and then I'd have to come back and make amends to all of you, and that just really gets tiring and old after a while. Although there are a few people on the road, which I do have my resentment prayers that I say after they've obviously gotten their uh, driver's license from a mail-in catalog. Um, and I do. I really do. I, I, I tell them some words I won't, because this is being recorded, some words I won't uh, use that I start off at the beginning of my resentment prayer, but I then pray that all good in the later life comes to them as long as it doesn't affect the good in other people's life. And it's important for me to use the words I need to in the beginning because that's honesty. Those are, it's an expression of my anger. The next thing I can do is, is then I can turn it over to my higher power. And then after that, I can also understand that I do want all good to come to that particular person, but not at the expense of someone else. Uh, because otherwise, I'll start looking at myself and say, well, somebody that's along the line must have said a resentment prayer at least once in my lifetime, so therefore I can have anything I want to. No, that doesn't work that way for me. So, for today, just one day at a time, what I try to do, and I'm not always 100% successful, when I get up in the morning, is I, if I'm going to do some exercise, I do that first. Uh, then I sit down and I meditate. Uh, my meditation kind of goes like the, the cartoon of the, the dog when he's looking out the window and somebody's talking to him and all of a sudden it's squirrel. And that's my meditation. That's how it goes. You know, it, and it starts off in that regard. And I have come to understand that my meditation isn't about perfection. My meditation is slowly to become to a point so that I can finally comprehend what the meaning of serenity is. Because I had no experience of what really serenity meant before. At this point in my life, I will trade happiness for serenity. Because too many times in, hap in this life, happiness means something I can buy or acquire. Whereas serenity, I don't have to buy it. I don't even have to acquire it. I just have to let it be. So if you're brand new, by the way, uh, I, it is really important to work the steps in order. But I would also suggest stepping, uh, jumping to step 11 right away. It wouldn't hurt you at all. Stop through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, as basically as we understood him. Which is a really important thing for me, by the way. And I don't have the three years it would take to try and wind through the labyrinthian theology that I currently have or lack therein but if somebody had told me you have to believe in this particular God or higher power I would have walked right out of the room because it has to be something personal for me anyway that first step basically tells me that I'm powerless over food but a lot of other things including life, death uh, our medical conditions my ego 
uh, fact that I have feelings. I'm also powerless over the fact that I have crazy thoughts that come into my head. And boy, do they come at me. Uh, but like the old cartoon I've described in the past, it's just like the wolf who is running, trying to batter the, down, the door for the three pigs. One pig is the front, one was the middle, one at the back. One on the front sees it as soon as he sees the wolf just about to hit the door of the battering ram. He opens it up. The wolf is tearing ass right through the building, and the pig in the back opens the door, and that's what I can do with the thoughts that come at me all the time. And I know now, when a certain thought pattern comes up, it doesn't have to necessarily be at a particular topic. Time's up. With that, what I've done and what this program has given me is to be able to release and let it go. I don't have to fight it. So one day at a time, I can turn my will and my life over to the care of my higher powers. I understand them. And most importantly, is, is that without you, I would not have any abstinence. And thank you for allowing me to talk today. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own. Uh, and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Uh, uh, we're being recorded, just if you would remember that as well, too. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible in the OA podcast. And I will try to remember to uh, restate the question. Otherwise, if you could throw the big book at me, that would be great. And that goes up until about 9.35. Any questions? Were there any particular tools that I used through this tumultuous times in the last couple of years of my life or things that I've used that I haven't used before? Uh, it's a good question, and one of the things, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. I will simply say that during my first eye operation, um, I woke up. And at that particular period of time, I was also paralyzed. And I have claustrophobia. And uh, when I realized I was not going to be able to say anything to anyone about that, what I did was I realized, first of all, one of the things I'm grateful for, as just this program tells us, this is one day at a time. And at some point, this would end. Didn't know what it was going to be, but at some point, this is going to end. But the other thing that I prayed for during that particular time, and I've used that at other times as well, too, is, is that I prayed for the strength and guidance of my higher power. I didn't ask my higher power to stop this right now. That's what I want to do. And by the way, I'm no hero. I'm no saint. I don't walk on water. Occasionally, I can swim okay, and I dog paddle pretty good. But I realize that if I start trying to figure out what life is going to be like, then there's a good chance I'm going to be relying on my own best, which is worst, thinking in cases like that. So once again, in that particular situation, I knew I was powerless over the situation I was in. I believe that there was a higher power that would be able to take care of me and get me through it, and that I would turn my will and my life over to that higher power, which I just realized something. I didn't do that at that particular time. I prayed for the strength and guidance, but I didn't happen to pray. And I'm not going to beat myself up about this the best I can do while I'm sort of sitting there. Anyway, 
and um, I did have some PTSD afterwards. The thing that this program has taught me is, is that, first of all, when I got into this program, there were feelings I had that I hadn't dealt with in 43 years. And over a period of time, this, those dealing with the feelings have got closer and closer and closer. And I had PTSD after that first surgery until I was really, until I understood enough that I could start talking about it out loud, that there was fear, I was anxious, and a number of things that occurred. And that's what it, it, for me, is its important part for my sharing that with another human being, because that's part of that triangle. Myself, my higher power, and another human being. But once I started to do that, then things started to dissipate. Once I was willing to be honest about things, willing to understand that I wasn't a guy who could be strong in all situations, because that's not the truth. We all have our Achilles heel. And so I hope that answers your question. In the beginning of my program, how did I overcome willfulness? Uh, baseball bat. No. The, um, I'm going to answer your question by telling you what happened after about the first that was five or six days after I first started the program. I sat down to my abstinent breakfast. I had three jugglers to bring my one bowl of stuff to set it down so that it wouldn't spill all over so I could make sure I had enough to eat. And I ate, 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 and at the end of it, when I started to put the spoon down, I realized there was nothing more to eat if I was going to remain absent at that time, and I thought I was going to die, because it was the only thing I knew. I didn't know what to do once you had finished that last bite. There was never a last bite, because I was always thinking of the next bite, tomorrow's bite, the evening's dinner, all of that type of thing. And my willfulness at that particular point would have been to be the guy, duct tape my, you know, self to the mass so I don't hear the sirens, you know, calling me. But rather than do that, what I did was, is I got down on my knees and I prayed to my higher power to take away the compulsion to eat. Not for the rest of my life, not for the next year, not for the next month, next week, not for the next day, not even for lunch, but just for breakfast. And by doing those things and willing to let go and turn it over and trusting, once again, because of all the things I had heard other people had done before me and gone down those roads before me, the feelings wouldn't kill me. I really wasn't going to die. And most importantly, there was a higher power looking over me at all times to be able to give me the strength that needs to be done, but not relying on my own self-will. Did that answer your question? Thank you. Oh, yes, I thought so. Uh, two children, Mrs. Um, Judith and uh, Father. And I was wondering, um, as you're raising them and they watched you with their program, uh, if there was any sort of resistance from them up here? Uh, good question. Earlier on, when I was uh, raising my kids, uh, oh, yeah, I know, sorry. The question was, is that uh, earlier on when I was a single dad for a period of time, did my children have any resistance to the fact that I was working a program? Yes. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) And how did I deal with it? Yes. Um, Just to give you some reference point, uh, my son was 13 and my daughter was six. Uh 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 
under the best of circumstances, have this wonderful insanity called hormones. They also have this other thing, too, that it was like, if, if for any reason I was, now you don't know that I was, if I were my son's concept of a higher power when he was born in a year, two, three, four, five, six years old, for some reason, as I got older and he got older, my intelligence level obviously was dropping precipitously, and I'm sure he had a great deal of concern about what was happening to his senile father. Um, Yes, there was some resistance to the program in the sense that it did take me away from them for a certain period of time. And um, there was a point later on where my first wife was able to take care of them on certain occasions. But in the beginning, it was just, you know, do the best I can. So I relied on the on the kindness of strangers. And I'm grateful that they weren't that strange and that they were available to do it. Um, And. The one practical part of it, uh, after my son essentially was acting up and I went outside to cool down and call my sponsor and say, what the hell do I do with this situation? And he said, well, you can call the police, but they're not going to do anything anyway. Um, I had an abscess in my tooth at that particular time. Long stories. Abscess in my tooth at the time. And as I was walking back in, praying for God to give me the strength and guidance to be able to know how to handle the situation, I also prayed, if he's going to hit me, have him at least hit me where the, the abscess is so I can deal with two things at one time. I went inside, and as I was sitting on his chest, literally, and he was three inches taller than I was at that time, uh, and he said, I didn't ask to be born, and I lovingly said to him, I said, no one did. Um, There were times that were rough, no question about it whatsoever, because even forget, even if there were no other issues other than the fact of divorce, there would still have been tough times. And once again, teenage years can be challenging, and we all know that one way or the other. But what kept coming back to me was the reminder that I cannot impart anything I don't have. And so, you know, at that particular time, that particular set of circumstances happened within, I'd say, about two months of my being a single dad. And I did the best I could with at the time. It didn't harm him. I just needed to literally sort of drive a point home. Um, and... I also understood, though, that they would, by carrying the message to them would not necessarily mean that they would get the message. And the thing I had to learn as a parent, and I even learn now as a sponsor, I may not be the one to carry the message to that person. I may not be the one that's going to carry the message to, to my kids. And, um, by the way, after all these years, my son thinks my intelligence has started going up slightly again. So that's the good news. Um, but that's how I dealt with it, is, is I understood that the fact that I was going to a program and even took them to a, a program on a couple of occasions, that didn't mean that they were going to accept that. So by my accepting that I had limitations as a parent and as a human being, I didn't sit there and, uh, not entirely true, most of the time, I didn't sit there and try and make them believe something that I happened to believe in at that particular point, just trying to be as much as possible an example whether they were willing or able to accept that or not. Did that answer the question? Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Thank you very much. It seems to me that in addition to your 12-step program or programs, uh, you've had outside help. And um, could you explain... My experience is that they sort of, one says, talk about yourself, one says, think about others. How you 
make those dovetail? Uh, the question is, I've, it appears that I've had outside help. How do I deal with the fact that one tells you to talk about yourself and the other talks about uh, being able to work with others? Is that the right question? Okay. Um, first of all, it's important to understand for me that I'm in that list of things. I may not be at the top of the list, might have the bottom list, it doesn't really matter, but I'm in that list of inventory about who I am and what I'm about. And so at some point, whether it happens to be with a sponsor or someone in an outside set of circumstances, I am going to need to talk about myself because guess what? I'm the one that carries my story. I'm the only one that really knows the story that's going on inside. I can show you, as I have in the past lives, uh, or tell you about all the wonderful things that are happening in my life, all the worlds that have conquered and all that sort of thing, supposedly, and most of that science fiction anyway. But when it comes to my inner life, I'm going to have to be able to express that in some fashion so I can start getting information and feedback, whether that be from my sponsor or whether it happens to be from somebody I'm seeking outside help from. The other thing, too, is is that uh, I don't think it's exclusive of the fact of my ability to help others because here's what happened. If I can teach somebody else how to do something, it reinforces what it is that I know. By my being able to share something with someone else, I can get out of my own head. And the more that I get out of my own head, the more I'm able to understand the stories that are in my head that are true and that are false. So I get feedback by talking to myself about myself to someone else, once again, either inside or outside of the program. And I also am able to get outside of myself by working with other people. As it talks about, I believe in the big book, the best thing I can do when I'm really feeling low is go work with somebody else. Go work with another compulsive overeater. And as much as I may smile on the phone, I've got to admit here in front of God and everybody in this room, and there's at least one person in this room that I sponsor too, when I take that call, sometimes I'd rather be doing something else. <laughs> but within five to ten seconds, maybe half a minute afterwards, I begin to realize the process is going on again. And that process is, if I help others, I'm going to help myself as well too. And so I don't see a, uh, any contradiction between the two. Did that answer the question? Enough. Enough. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your share, Victor. Uh, have you, your answer may be no, and then you can move on to somebody else. Have you experienced no. in your... No. Uh, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. In your time in program, have you experienced a crisis of faith? And have you really been sort of at a loss for... That's an excellent question. My facetious answer is, what time is it? Yes, I have. Repeat the question. I'll repeat the question. The question is, is that during the period of time that I've been in the program, I've experienced a, a crisis of faith and belief. That's what I understand. Is that correct? And in that regard, the answer is yes. Because once again, I'm a fallible human being. And um, the relationship that I have with my higher power continues to evolve. And so there are certain times where I get to the point, less so than now, but still it happens occasionally. But especially in the beginning, when I first got in the program, I was adopting a kinder, gentler version of a higher power that I've been given since the time I was born. But it also meant a punishing God as well, too. And so there were points in my life where certain things happened that 
I couldn't figure out why the hell did, did, is it God? Did he wake up this morning and say, I got to screw Victor this morning to teach him a lesson. So it must be my day in the barrel. And I'm going, hey, wait a minute. It's been my day in the barrel the last 60 some odd years. That's not the higher power that I believe in. But that doesn't mean I haven't felt let down. doesn't mean I haven't been pissed off at God. And it doesn't mean that I sat there quietly without telling him exactly what I thought of him and where he could stuff it if he didn't like the situation and the way it was going. But by doing so and by questioning that faith on an ongoing basis, it lets me know that my higher power has my back. My higher power does not wake up in the morning and figure out ways to teach me something by sending something bad in my life. Life of in itself has baked into it pain. And I get a choice. Do I add to my pain? Or do I add to the pain of others? Or do I find some way to ameliorate or soften that pain? And so by, uh, yeah, I do have crises of faith, but I don't look at them as something that I'm going to turn away from my higher power because of it. And in fact, it happens, I think, personally, to strengthen that relationship. Because if the son of a bitch can't stand what I say to him, then I'm going to fire him and I'm going to get a new one. Her, it, whatever it happens to be. And as I said, there's a few years of rambling theology behind that. Did that answer your question? Thank you. I think the question was, in the beginning, did I struggle with finding out what a defining an abstinence was for me? And did my perfectionism ever lead me to think that somehow I had broken it when maybe I hadn't? Is that right? Okay. Uh, time's up, but if I can give a 30-second answer, if that's okay, is, is, is that two things. Somebody uh, uh, shared their abstinence and food plan with me from day one, so I had one from day one that I was willing to follow. Uh, and yes, there was a certain amount of perfectionism. And at times I had to check that out and find out if it was okay, if I actually was still good. And that was okay. And I've, I've learned another saying, which I'll finish with, which is it's better to aim for perfection and miss the mark than to aim for imperfection and hit the mark. So thank you for letting me share.